Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer Softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talked to Natasha Porter, founder and chief executive of Unlock Graduates, and Oki Cobb and Karen Rye about their experiences training to be prison officers through the organisation's unique leadership development programme and what they have learned along the way. Hello, I'm Oki Cobb and I was an Unlock graduate and spent two and a half years at HMP Wandsworth. Hi, I'm Corin Rye. I'm a 2018 Unlock Graduates Ambassador, spending two years at HMYY Aylesbury, and I'm a current mentor at the Longford Trust. Hi, I'm Natasha Porter. I'm founder and chief exec of Unlock Graduates. So Natasha, tell me why you decided to set this organisation up, because it's not your sort of average organisation, is it? Trying to recruit prison officers into the justice system and to the prison service. So uh, I was on the Coates Review of Education and Prison and um, hadn't really spent much time in prison or thought about it very much uh, before doing that. I used to be a teacher and spent a number of years teaching in disadvantaged inner city secondary schools and was really interested in the power that education has to transform lives and to really be a silver bullet for a lot of other disadvantages which can exist in children's lives. I think going into prisons, my bias was that if a prisoner interacted with an inspiring, amazing teacher, they could discover a love of learning through that teacher and that would kind of transform their life. And what I hadn't bargained for was the journey that a prisoner often has to make in order to meet that teacher. And the level of buy-in to education as a concept, the level of kind of buy-in to yourself as a human being, self-esteem you need to get up in the morning and decide I am worth investing in. I am worth educating and I can involve myself in education and be successful at it. And actually, um, I think quickly saw that the demographic of people in prison are often people who've been unsuccessful at education through their lives and are therefore not, when they reach prison, making a decision to go to education. Um, And became more and more interested, I guess, in if they're not engaging with teachers, um, I think my, my background in teaching made me believe that it's a human being who can change the life of another human being. Um, humans have a power to change humans in a way that I don't think anything else can, can change humans in the same way. So who is that human in a prison who is, who is able to change, um, to change other humans? And, and where, where, given how disadvantaged and challenging some of the prison cohort are, like who's making a difference? And became a bit obsessed with the prison officer, actually. And um, and I think became obsessed with this concept 
that you've got about one in four prisoners grew up in care. So from early childhood, social worker engagement, which is a degree profession, ongoing professional development. And that kind of hasn't worked because they've ended up in prison. About half of people in prison expelled from school don't have a single qualification. So again, teachers unable to reach them, myself included, actually. So again, degree profession, ongoing professional development, unable to reach them. Lots of mental health overrepresentation, lots of interaction with doctors, other frontline professional public sector workers. And at the end of the journey, where none of that has managed to work, it's a group of people who end up in prison who are the hardest to reach in society. And you'd think if you were designing a system, you'd put your brain surgeon of the public sector there. You'd have the most intense training, the highest entry bar for recruitment, and you just throw resource at their training and development so that they were able to make a difference with that hardest to reach group. And is that not what happens currently? That is not what happens. So so the the entrance criteria to become a prison officer is lower than any of those other professions and the training is much shorter. I think the other thing which I found really surprising is there just isn't consistent embedded professionalisation in terms of professional development in the job around how to deal with really complex, disadvantaged, challenging people who you're working with in prisons, who who everyone else has, has failed to reach often. And what was most surprising is that there are prison officers who are making a difference, who are able to reach these prisoners that none of those other public sector workers are able to reach. And they're doing it with less training, less resource. So so just like became fascinated by who are these people? Who are these people that are doing this amazing work? And how do we codify it? How do we recruit people and train people to do this job in a in a better way? And that was the the mission of Unlock Graduates. I was just wondering whether you could give the listener an idea of actually at the moment, if you were going to go down a traditional route to become a prison officer, how long is the training? I know it's not very long, but I can't remember where we're at today. And can you compare that to um, what Unlock Graduates kind of ask for? Yeah, and I think there's there's a real push in the prison service on this and there's an apprenticeship coming out which which is hopefully being rolled out soon hopefully going to make some changes in this uh it's a it's a year long i think the new apprenticeship and there are there are some kind of challenges to unpick about how you get training prioritized but but it's a really good step which is hopefully going to be happening soon at the moment however training is about 10 weeks long it kind of goes up to 12 weeks i think at one point it was as short as 6 weeks the the problem is that there's only so much you can learn in an artificial classroom environment. Actually, there's a lot that you just need to learn from doing the job and then reflecting on how you've done the job. And what we're really passionate about is how to bring a model of much more training on the job. So you do a little bit of training at the beginning, so you learn the skills that make you safe on the landing. But actually, what's really difficult about being a prison officer is not searching a cell effectively. I mean, you can learn that in in a few days of practice and good feedback. What's really difficult about being a prison officer is the same thing that's difficult about being a teacher or any of the other those other frontline professionals. It's about holding care and boundaries and extremely high expectations at the same time. And, and getting that balance of kind of discipline and care right is really complex. And that's what we think. So our training is two years. You get uh, initial training period and then it's two years of on the line practical support from an expert prison officer helping to train and develop you in your skills as a prison officer. Okay, and just quickly, is that people who've come out of university, so they're undergrads, what stage are your recruits at? We recruit graduates, so you need to have 
at least a 2-1 degree um, in order to start our application process. And we we do recruit about 40% are career changers. So 40% have done a job for a few years, but have a university degree and then are looking for something different. And about 60% are straight from university, some undergrads, some postgrads. We we recruit, and that's partly about bringing diversity of thinking skills onto the landing. Typically, what we found in our early uh, research, and in fact, we've recently found again in some recent research, is people at the most competitive universities do not consider becoming prison officers. So you don't have that diversity of their particular problem-solving skills on the landings. And we think there should be a range of problem-solving skills on the landings. So that's who we're attracting. They're a group who aren't attracted through through the standard route. Yeah, because I was going to say that's really quite different, isn't it, to the traditional recruitment of prison officers? Because I think at one point, and I'm not sure whether that it's still true today, they were recruiting prison officers um, and actively saying no qualifications needed. You don't need a single qualification to become a prison officer. There are increasing levels of graduates becoming prison officers. There's also an increasing proportion of our population becoming graduates. So it isn't unusual for a graduate to become a prison officer. It is still unusual for a graduate of the most competitive universities and most academic universities to become a a prison officer. Right. So the graduates, um, well, the recruits come to you and then it's a two-year training process. And can you just quickly sort of talk us through kind of roughly what happens in those two years? So we do a six-week very intensive initial training period. It's actually got more hours in than the 10-week initial prison officer training standard route. In that time, we talk about getting participants day one ready. So it's about basic jail craft, how to search someone, how to uh, de-escalate a situation, and also just the rules of a prison. Something which we do which is slightly different in that is that we try and have um, an ex-prisoner in most of our classrooms. And we have ex-prisoners who work as part of our staff team through our initial training. We think that's really important because actually when you're learning, for example, how to search someone, there's a procedural knowledge piece. How do you physically search someone? But actually when you're searching someone in a prison, and particularly, Edwina, you'll know in, in, some of, um, in some of our prisons we're holding, particularly female prisons, I think, we're holding people who can find searching extremely traumatising. Also, uh, the overrepresentation of of prisoners from from ethnic backgrounds, which means they will have been searched repeatedly in the community and sometimes be triggered when they're searched again in a prison context. It's really important that prison officers are aware of that while they're searching and that they're thinking about that all the time. If they're going to be building the kind of relationships with prisoners, that means they can break cycles of reoffending. So we have a prison, an ex-prisoner in the room who says, um, OK, you're learning how to search. And the the prison officer who we've trained to teach them says, this is how you search someone. I'm an excellent prison officer. This is how I search someone. Watch my model. And then the ex-prisoner says, actually, this is what it feels like to be searched. This is what it feels like to be searched when I've just had a visit with my kids who I haven't seen for six months. And I just want to go back to my cell and like hold that memory. And, And you're searching me. This is how it feels like to be searched when I have a history of, of, you know, sexual abuse in my past. And actually, I've just arrived in prison for the first time and you've got your hands on me and it's really intrusive. And what that does is, I think there's a risk always in in in, in the world that things become procedural and we forget the human, particularly in training. And actually, what we make sure is that the human is always at the forefront and the ex-prisoner's voice. The other thing is that what it shows our, our prison officers from day one, on the first day, we have this opening ceremony 
and they have a speech from an ex-prisoner saying, when I was in prison, you know, prison officers, this is what they did. And actually, when I came out of prison, I haven't gone back eventually. And what it does is from day one, they have role models of ex-prisoners who've stopped going back to prison. And it means that they believe it's possible. And that's really important. So those are the kind of things that we do in the first six weeks. Um, through the next two years, they do a master's degree in leading change in custodial environments. I can talk a bit more about the leadership in a bit, but that's um, we think is, is really important because actually as a prison officer, you are leading change. You are helping people to make decisions to change their own lives, for example. Um, they also get group supervision. We think that's really important part of kind of mental health well-being. And we think the prison officer job is, is pretty tricky with mental health. And therefore, it's really important to have at least that kind of base level of support. And they also have one-to-one -one training and support throughout from an experienced prison officer uh, who is their mentor. And that looks like um, that prison officer observing them on the landing, seeing that perhaps they're struggling a bit with their confidence when they're instructing a prisoner to come off the phone at the end of association and then practicing with them how to get their tone right, how to make sure they're doing that in a way that isn't aggressive, but is assertive. Um, and they'll, they'll train them through those kind of micro skills, which we think make someone an excellent prison officer. Okay. So we have Oki and Karen here today as well. So I'm just keen to hear from you guys about what it was actually like going through it. What did you learn? Was it brilliant? Was it terrifying? Um, so Oki, we'll maybe go to you first. How on earth did you uh, come across Unlock Graduates and what made you want to go into working in prisons? So I was at Exeter University and I did French and Spanish, um, which was a four-year degree. And I came to my final year and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this degree? What am I going to do with my life? And actually just through extensive searching on Google, I stumbled across Unlock Graduates. And the thing that stuck out to me about the Unlock Graduate scheme was not only that it was new, um, it was sort of a new concept, it was a new idea, but also it was such a stark opportunity to go into a place of work and start making a difference from the first day. There was obviously the sort of the attractiveness and the appeal of doing a master's degree alongside it, which was really exciting. Um, but also it's an opportunity to go into a prison. I had no prior experience with um, criminology or criminal justice or prisons. And so it was a very unique opportunity, as I say, to just try something completely different, to throw yourself into a completely challenging environment. But the most important thing for me was the opportunity to work with people um, and have that real sort of human engagement um, from the first day all the way through your career. Um, so that's what got me into it. Um, and I had, I had quite a funny recruitment process. Um, and the recruitment itself is amazing because you go through various stages of the application and then if you progress through a particular round, you will meet each other at um, sort of an interview day and there are three components to that interview day. The first is to do sort of, um, what do we, it's, a, it's a group session where you're split into two teams and you're sort of observed how you approach a problem, how you tackle a particular challenge and you're monitored in that. The second component is having an interview with someone from Unlocked, prison officer and an ex-prisoner, which is again an amazing experience and you get a really good sort of sense of from that of what, it, what what's important, what it is they're looking for from a prison officer. And then the final round is, it's a role play and we've been warned in advance that this was going to involve so going into a situation and being with a prisoner who had a particular uh, challenge or a difficulty, which you were then going to have to respond to as a prison officer. 
And so this was quite daunting in itself, but I remember sort of brushing myself off, doing my stretches, getting ready to go into this room where I was going to have to do this, this, this role play. And I went in and you had this actor who was playing, was playing a prisoner who went in straight away, sort of shouting and screaming and obviously had a problem, you know, sort of calling you every name under the, under the sun. Um, and again, the purpose of it is just to see how you respond and how you react in that situation, how you de-escalate um, sort of a potentially sort of conflicted and hostile situation. And this went on for 10 minutes and I was going, oh, would you like to sit down? Let's, you know, let's have a, let's have a calm conversation about this. And the, the effing and blinding was going on. And 10 minutes went past and the actor slash prisoner stopped suddenly, turned around to me and said, listen, Oki, I'm really sorry. The invigilator isn't actually here. So we're going to have to do this all over again. Oh my God. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. So I sort of went out and then came back in again. But it was... It was actually, it was such an amazing experience because then with that, you're under no illusion of what you're then going to be dealing with. Um, so that was very funny. But then what was great and sort of referencing your question as to what the, sort of the process was like, as Natasha was saying, Summer Institute, where you go for the first six weeks, is brilliant because you're with this group of individuals. And at the time, our cohort was about 100 individuals all doing the, um, the master's degree in training with the University of Suffolk. And you're all together and you've all come from, you're, most of you are sort of fresh, raised from uni. And we're all sitting there and we're all there like, oh my gosh, we're going to be prison officers. We're going into prison. And it's just, it's a really fun experience when you sort of recognise the sort of the severity and sort of the intensity of the task at hand. But it's just great to be with sort of a lot of sort of like-minded people who are really motivated and, and inspired by making a difference. And I've never had an experience like that. And I don't think I will again, because it's just there's such a sense of sort of momentum behind it, which was really exciting and really good fun. Brilliant. And Karen, before we um, get on to life on the wings, how, how did you come to Unlock Graduates? So I did an undergraduate politics degree, then I did a sports management master's, and then naturally ended up in the prison service, as you do. Right, uh, yeah, totally natural progression there. Yeah, exactly, right? So I was, towards the end of my uh, master's, I was looking at next moves in terms of my career. I've always had ambitions to work at a football governance level at some point in the future. And then I came across Unlocked, and I've had no intention of joining the criminal justice system. I didn't really know much about it, in all honesty. Um, it came on my Facebook feed, and I had a Look at, it, look at it and I understood more about the challenge and working with young people, which is something I love doing. Historically, I've done work placements as a teacher in different countries and I've loved it. And I thought maybe I could actually, you know, take on this challenge, which is really attractive and work with young people and help them grow and develop and help reduce their reoffending when they are released. And I also looked at the skills you need to be successful in a boardroom at football level. And these were the skills I could develop in the prison and then transfer them at some point after the placement in the prison. I also like the package of Unlocked. I thought it was really attractive in terms of writing a policy paper and doing a master's. I thought this is academically challenging also for me. And I thought, yeah, why not go for this? Let's see what it's all about. And since then I've loved it. I thought it was a brilliant experience and I now continue to do work with former prisoners. And a question to all of you, because I've been in the same boat. You know, I came out of university, I did study criminology and sociology, so there was a bit more of a natural progression for me. But the reaction from friends and family, you know, we all care what our parents think about our career choices, don't we? And they're usually sort of quite involved in some of it. Were they like, 
I'm sorry, what? How did you handbrake turn into the sort of prison service? Like, what was the reaction? Well, the first people who discovered that this was going to be my career of choice, they were actually my um, university housemates. And they just thought I was barking mad and they thought I was just being loud and overexcitable. And they didn't really think I was necessarily going to go through with it. But over time, you know, they they got to see and sort of my, my parents got to see and my friends got to see how sort of infused I was about about this and about this challenge. And of course, you know, my parents in particular, the first, the first reaction from them was sort of sheer horror. You're going into a prison. This is really dangerous. You know, these are violent environments. You, you know, I'm usually quite sort of a happy-go-lucky person. And they thought, no, this is not where you should be. Absolutely not at all. But I was so determined um, and the challenge was so exciting. But I think it's interesting because the immediate reaction from people, I think, says so much about society's perception of prison and the prison officer in general. I was going to say exactly the same thing, because if you'd said, well, I'm going to be a teacher or I'm going to go and work in football, people would be like, oh, cool, cool. And I was going to say that. It's like, why should people be so horrified? I mean, I can understand because actually... Prisons are dangerous places. They are violent places. You know, we shouldn't ever um, sort of dress it up to be um, something else. You have to be careful, don't you? And you have to be on your guard a lot of the time. They're also wonderful places to work in in many ways. But yeah, it, I think you're right. It does bring up a good point as to why it's such a horrific thing to say you want to go and work in prisons. And I think a huge amount of that derives from the fact that no one knows what happens in the prison. You only see a prison on TV or in the media when... You know, it's portrayed as just nonstop carnage. It's the source of, you know, TV series and, and films where terrible things happen, but really sort of over-sensationalised things happen. And so when you say I'm going into a, a prison, people react as they do because they don't know enough about it. And there's, you know, there's a sort of very monolithic portrayal of what a prison is and what a prison means and what being a prison officer means. So I think increasingly over time when people, you know, say oh, how's your job? And is it terrifying? And what's the worst thing you've seen? You know, you can come up with sort of, I suppose, a more nuanced description of what being in a prison actually means. And sort of, as you said, the amazing work that actually goes on in prison, that it's not all fighting, that it's not all dealing with violent and aggressive people, that actually it is a place where you see the most amazing examples of care and you see the most amazing examples of professionalism. And also you have the sort of the authority to say actually not all prisoners are terrible violent aggressive people they're complex people they're misunderstood people but they're also people who can be supported to turn their lives around and so it's interesting back to the original point that over time you know people would ask me oh how's work as they would with anyone else working an office job or working as a teacher or working because it became a sort of more, it became such an interesting learning process for all of us, actually, what being in a prison meant. And Karen, what about your parents? Were they like, great, just go for it? Uh, yeah, everyone was really shocked, especially as a lot of my friends were going into corporate roles straight after university. So this was something very different. And as, as we were talking about earlier, my journey to this, doing a sports management degree was not normal. <laughs> um, interestingly, there was actually a bit of awkwardness with my father because... Coming from an Asian background, you know, he has suffered from institutional racism from the police. And this was a bit of a, it created a weird tension, but I was talking to him about how important it is to have diverse officers in this role to aid with rehabilitation and to have more role models, especially with ethnic minority population so high in prisons at the moment, especially in the youth estate. And 
that actually won him over. He really understood the importance of actually going into this role and making a difference that way. Right. And it really, again, sort of brings back into sort of sharp focus the importance of these kind of roles within the criminal justice system as a whole, I think. You know, maybe put the law to one side because that's sort of more prestigious. Um, but when it comes to probation officers and maybe police officers less so, but um, and certainly prison officers, the fact that these conversations are happening in different households, in different backgrounds, different classes, um, you know, I think is, is so important why Unlock Graduates is such a, a sort of brilliant organisation. But then coming back to the wings, so day one, you walk into a prison, you've never been in one before. Karen, what was it like for you? Did you get that sort of, I remember the first day I went into a prison when I was 18 years old and the heart's kind of beating and you're like, oh God, I have no idea what to expect. Can you describe that first day to me? It was really nerve wracking, especially because you're really fresh faced and your boots are really shiny and prisoners can smell that you're a new officer from a mile away. <laughs> they can smell um, the vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'll be honest, that kind of period from the first day, the first three months in general were probably the hardest. And that is because prisoners are testing you. They know you are new and they will test you to the limit. And, you know, I dealt with things such as people ignoring you and things like that. And that was very difficult to deal with. But the brilliant thing is you have such a great team. It's not just you on your own. You're in a team of roughly between four and five officers and they will always have your back and that is the most important thing you can always lean on them for support and those officers that have maybe worked in the prison longer who are able to take you under their wing is that right or is this the mentor that is looking after you from unlocked graduates uh, both you, you have a mentor you see every couple of weeks which is brilliant uh, because you can you know they are there to listen to you and help you with any issues you've had and you also have experienced officers that work with you on a day-to-day -day basis that can support you through any tough situations you face. Can you give me any examples when you say you're tested to the limit? I mean, you know, prisoners might ignore you, but I know that's probably the sort of the less serious end of how a prisoner might test you. Do you have any examples mm. of what people did? If they ask you to do something, for example, if they ask you to print off their spending sheet and you don't have time and then they instantly get aggressive at you and start shouting at you, it can be easy to crumble you know, I've had a lot of wobbly knee situations in my in my time. And um but it's important to, you know, ensure you're resilient and stay firm. You are well drilled in this in our training. You know, there are times when we were talking about earlier where we have we go through scenarios in Summer Institute and there are times where you have to deal with aggressive prisoners. And yeah, it's just not buckling under pressure when you're new and just remaining confident in your decision making. And saying no is no, not saying no and then changing to a yes. And then that is where prisoners will get you. And it's important to just have confidence in yourself and your decision making. Kind of reminding me of uh, parenting. Um, and, I, <laughs> and, you know, and I don't mean to sound trite because I know a lot of these men are big, terrifying men who are there to intimidate you. But it's sort of, I always think this, I've been a parent now for sort of almost 10 years. And, and a lot, coming back to the education point, Natasha, that kind of no means no, stand firm even when you're tired you're scared you can't be bothered whatever it is it's like some some principles that really remain the same I think there's also something about that being care actually caring for someone means no says no it means boundaries it means it means super high expectations and saying actually I think that you can behave appropriately and I'm going to care for you and support you to behave in that way and if you don't, I'm going to hold you to account because I believe that you're capable of it because I care about you. And actually, that's a really powerful message, not I'm going to you know, put this rule in place because I'm a power hungry, 
you know, or because I can't be bothered to do it, but actually I'm going to do it because I care about you. And I believe that you can wait for 20 minutes. You know, you can show patience and, and I think you can be calm while you do that because, because I think there's, you know, you're, you're awesome and you've got heaps about you and, and I believe in you. And actually if I give in, then when you leave this place and you're waiting for, you know, in a job interview, if you're asked to wait, you might also respond in this way. And, and I want you to, to know that you can do this. And I, I think a lot of what we talk about is about narrating the purpose behind the power. So it's not about the power. It's always about going back to that why. Exactly. Um, and there's something about, I think, emotional security in that and boundaries. And when yeah. certain people in prison may have been brought up without any boundaries at all. And again, sort of coming back to the, the children point, it's like, Children like structure, they like boundaries, they like to know where the line is. Yes, they'll cross it, but you can sort of challenge them in a sort of parental, non-threatening way to get them to comply. You know, so it's a similar thing, isn't it? And we all do, right? Like it feels safe when we know where the boundary is and we feel loved and cared for if people hold us to account because it means they believe that we can do that. And life is less stressful, I think, when you understand what boundaries are and where you yeah. might um, cross them and run into trouble. But Oki, what was your first day like? Well, it, it was interesting because along with sort of being terrified and very daunted by my initial day, I think it's, as we were saying, there's a really important sort of human point in that we're not dealing with people who are volatile 100% of the time. We're dealing with people who are interested, who like to chat, who want to know why you're there, your motivations for joining the service and essentially what value they think that you can bring them. Um, and I think, you know, when when asked sort of why, why did you join the prison service to say, actually, I'm just here to sort of make your lives a bit easier to help you prepare better for release. Um, and to, I don't know, you know, even sort of lighten the mood, just make this a bit more cheerful people respond to that and um people do actually go out your way to help you it's interesting because you know prisons are so chronically understaffed actually a lot of the time it's prisoners saying oh do you know what miss i'd probably it's probably time to start you know locking up or it's probably time to lock the showers or whatever or oh i wouldn't get involved in that miss you know this that and the other so prisoners themselves are, are can be really helpful but you know there are there was a really like glorious but also very embarrassing occasion in my first uh, sort of three weeks of the job where I got given um, an instruction by the other member of staff who I was working with on the wing that day and bearing in mind there are sort of 150 prisoners on the wing that I was working on and two members of staff and the instruction was right Oki if you don't mind just going and unlocking the people for work in the morning that would be great so I sort of set off and said yeah no I can do this by myself it's absolutely brilliant and proceeded to unlock every door on that wing for people to go to work. 150 prisoners which are peering out their cell, rubbing their eyes, going, what's going on? I then come back down to the main landing and I tell my other member of staff, it's great, everyone's unlocked for work. They're all ready, they're all coming down, they're all waking up. And my colleague goes, what do you mean everyone's coming down? And I said, well, you know, I've unlocked all the doors and they're all ready to go. And he said, no, there's a list of eight names on it. You were supposed to unlock eight people. Oh, my God. And then so he said, quite rightly, right, you unlock them all. You go you go lock everyone else back up. You go tell them that it's not work and that they need to be behind their door. And what was so brilliant about this event, I mean, it could have been carnage and it could have been absolutely disastrous, but the fact that I sort of went round everyone and I said, look, I am so sorry. I've really messed up. I wasn't actually supposed to open this door. And the amount of people who, you know, had the opportunity to, to just run laps around me, said, do you know what, miss? 
I know you're new. We're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. That's absolutely fine. You can lock the door. It's, it's a very human environment and people respond to you yeah. as people would on, on the outside as well. Exactly. And there's certainly the stories that you'd never hear through uh, the tabloid media or, or via the radio waves. How You were both actually working in male prisons, weren't you? Because I was going to ask a question about... A, um, well, to you, Karen, how they responded to you. Did you, you know, suffer racism, anything like that? And then, Oki, I'm interested to know what it was like for you um, as a woman working in an adult male prison. So, Karen, maybe to you first on on that point. Um, I never really suffered racism in terms of overt racism from prisoners because there was a large diversity of prisons anyway, and I actually thought it was an advantage being from an Asian background and working with Asian prisoners. It created great ways to build relationships with them because we were not far off being similar ages. So we had similar backgrounds because my prison was the age category of 18 to 21. And I'm 20, yeah, at the time I was around 25. The first few months were very tough in terms of seeing toxic masculinity with this age group. We hear that terminology a lot. And I think a lot of people don't understand entirely what it is. So how does that manifest on a wing in the real world? Um, So with this age group, there's still a lot of immaturity. And I often found that in group situations, this age group would play up and put on a mask and give you a tough time when on a one-to-one basis, they'd be completely different and as sweet as a pie. (laughs) So I would have a prisoner, you know, shouting at me in front of his friends, you know, trying to act like a big man, shall we say. And then you go to their cell five minutes later and they're absolutely fine with you and they're saying, sorry about that, I had to do it you know, in front of the guys. Otherwise, you know, they would rip into me. And out of right. interest, then, how do you deal with that? Because I've I've been in um, sort of prisons where particularly young groups of guys just start shouting. And it does feel a bit feral, actually, if I'm allowed to say that, because you sort of think, God, this feels slightly out of control. And, you know, the energy in the Youth Offenders Institutes is like something different, I feel, the adult estate a lot of the time. So how do you, as an officer... You've got a group of guys sort of shouting at you. Are you meant to ignore it? Are you meant to clamp down on it? I think with situations like that, you don't have to stay there and take it, if that makes sense. You can walk away and then come back. And that's what I found beneficial to me. When that group would break up, I would actually go to talk to those prisoners after, as I was saying, and actually tell them how that made me feel, actually how I was hurt and how they would feel in that situation. Did they respond to that? Or were they like, oh, I don't care? They actually would on a one-to-one basis. Some of them would. And over time, I think naturally, they just begin to trust you anyway. It was just during the initial phases of being an officer that, that, you know, that they would do that. But over time, as they get to trust you and they know that you're decent and work hard, that all starts to drop. Yeah. And out of interest, is there a rub then between the sort of older, more traditional um, officer who has been trained in a very different way and actually received a lot less training than you guys have, having gone through two years and a master's degree? You know, some of them are like, what on earth are you doing talking to them about their feelings? Did you get stick then from the older officers or? Um, Yeah, it's quite interesting because a lot of the older officers sometimes have had military careers. So for them, they're not used to that. Um, but they know how, uh, I I think with officers, you are different pieces of a jigsaw. You all work together and have different strengths and that's important. And they recognize that that is the strength we have, you know, talking and listening and understanding each other's viewpoints and they respect that. But obviously, you know, they have their own strengths as well. You know, they probably are more resilient than I do, for example. And I think it's just understanding all our different strengths and how we can work together as a team. Yeah. 
And so, Oki, to you, um, being a young female working in an adult male prison, how was that? Interesting. So, again, and that was a huge concern voiced by people before I went into prison was, oh, well, you're female and you're working in an all-male prison. That's going to be sort of really intimida- uh, intimidating and people are going to be really inappropriate. And I found, I genuinely found the opposite to be true. It, in many ways, sort of what I think comes in hand perhaps with the sort of the toxic masculinity is this idea that, you know, the men have to be the protector and it's quite a macho culture. And if you speak down to a woman, a woman or a female member of staff, you know, you're going to be held to account for that, both by that member of staff and by the sort of the larger prisoner cohort. You know, it presented its challenge in as much as you've got me five foot seven um, talking to a prisoner who's sort of six foot, who is double my age and asking them to stop what they're doing or to go behind their door or to not behave that the way um, that they are at that moment. It's it's a question that I, and I suppose it sort of goes back to sort of the parent and the teacher um, comparison. You kind of have to fake it until you make it. You have to really sort of present yourself. And it's very unnatural at first to be that person with the authority and sort of with that sense of assertiveness when, um, as Karen said, all you really want to do is just go and hide around the corner. But over time, it does become more natural. And it's interesting you mentioned the three-month mark, Karen, because I found the first three months difficult in the sense that I knew I had to project this assertiveness. But once you develop sort of relationships with prisoners and staff and you get to know people's motivations and you get to know people's triggers a bit more, you can totally relax into the role and you can very much be yourself and have those sort of normal one-to-one conversations and not be afraid to bring out your personality in the way that you sort of allow the prisoners themselves to bring out their personality. And then you form this sort of mutual agreement where because you know each other, because you understand each other more, you don't necessarily want to let that other person down. So... You know, there'll be many times where a prisoner is very sort of irritated about something and you can go over to them and say, listen, you don't have to speak the way you're speaking to that member of staff because I know this isn't like you. Um, and I know, you know, I know you've been struggling with this. So let's move away from the situation. Let's go talk, talk about it. They respond to that. And, you know, they'll say, oh, well, because it's you, miss, it's fine. I'll, I'll go behind my door and I, this doesn't have to be a problem. So it is a question of time. Um and it is challenging, um, but it is it is that glorious moment, as you said, when you get to that stage where you do feel comfortable and it does come a second nature. Yeah, and I've certainly seen in prisons where women can actually um, diffuse violence sometimes in a way that's completely different to when there's aggression, um, you know, there might be men playing up and then another man tries to go in and diffuse it and it doesn't, you know, they're not as... Um, able to do it is sometimes when an older woman particularly sort of comes in and goes, oh, just sit down and behave yourself and and sort of almost like matronly like. And then you see these men sort of being like, oh, because it's almost like the mother role again. You know, it's interesting. We always keep coming back to the, the those parenting roles. And um, and certainly for me, like, I've also found going into a, a male prison, being a female, I'm very conscious of what I'm wearing, how I hold myself. And again, that you know, you get a wall of banter if you're walking past a group of men on the yard or something and you sort of, I don't know, there's a different way I hold myself compared to when I'm going into a women's prison. I don't think so much about those things. I don't have to worry about how I'm holding myself and pretending to be sort of bigger than I am. And Natasha, you've probably, because, you know, uh, the first time you ever went into a prison, you've been into sort of hundreds of prisons, no doubt, around the country. Did you, did you sort of experience a similar similar thing 
I think my big thing has been um, children who I've taught being in prison. And actually, I think the, I, I taught, you know, in, in challenging inner city schools for, um, for eight years at the beginning of my career. And my first, my teach first school was, was chaotic and extremely, um, extremely nuts. And I've, uh, I bumped into people who are now adults who were children in that school kind of across the country, serving prison sentences. Yeah. Um, I, I bumped into one serving a, a sentence for murder not, not that long ago. And I think what I found working in that school was that, um, you know, children did end up in the prison service and, and people, you know, there was, there was a big crossover with criminal justice and those kids and many of them at 16 fell out of the system when schools stopped being compulsory. What I found, and I also taught in a behaviour unit for a period of time, um, and and we were kind of an overspill school for Hackney that I was in, and there was a lot of a lot of really challenging behaviour, a lot of really challenging kids, and I never met one child who didn't have something great about them. Out of thousands and thousands of kids, I never met a single one, and that included children who were being expelled, um, some crazy extreme, you know, like kids who liked setting things on fire, so the whole school shot, um, kids who committed extremely violent acts. And and every single one of them had something about them that was that was good, and I think working in that behaviour unit, like every kid in that behaviour unit, at some point I had an interaction with, where like we laughed together, or um, or we just had a moment where they showed kindness and and compassion for another human being. And I get it is that kind of that complexity of humanity thing, but I think what that taught me and what I believe is that there's good in people and one of the things that we recruit for is um we call it the sense of possibility and it's it's the belief that there's always something that can be fixed there's always something that can be made better and and we talk about finding the 101 percent solutions so like what are the small incremental changes bits of light that we can bring as people to other people and and i think the other fascinating thing that i've seen through our participants is um it's not only what they what they learn working with the prisoners, it's actually the huge amount they learn from the prisoners. It's a, it's a two-way interaction. You asked about the difference between Unlocked and, and the older staff. I think we recruit mentors who are experienced prison officers. Um, some of them might be five years into the job, others are 25 years into the job, but these are people who are recruited and trained through the standard prison officer route, and they are incredible and they're completely aligned with our mission. Um, I think there are public servants like this all over. And what's really sad is the prison service, the prison officer is sometimes typecast as violent or um, or stupid or corrupt. And nothing is further from the truth when you see some of the extraordinary work that's happening on the front line. Absolutely. And, and I'd agree with that. My organisation works across 29 prisons in this country and we work with some of the best officers, um, the forward thinking officers, the innovative officers. I think often the framework and the structure of prisons prevents them from being the best that they can be. Um, and we, I suppose, do have to be honest in the fact that in some prisons, there are some very toxic cultures from the staffing side. But, um, and, I, and I think sort of prison culture is one of those um, interesting, difficult things to tackle. But I suppose my question leading on from that is how, from as the CEO of the organisation, founder of the organisation, 
what is your sort of vision with Unlock graduates? And and because I was wondering about the retention rate. So, you know, recruits go through, they graduate, and then and then what? Do do people stay in the service? Do they move on and do other things? Um, yeah. So it's lots of questions in one there, but. Uh... And a great question. So um, we, as an organisation, part of the thinking behind uh, two-year graduate scheme. So firstly, um, when you poll young people uh, finishing up their university degrees about what they want to do next, be, thinking beyond two years is is challenging. The idea of a job for life just isn't very attractive anymore. People want portfolio careers. They don't want to stay in their first job normally for more than a couple of years. So we we have a two-year graduate scheme and we don't in any way say this is a job for life because um, despite public sector being positioned as that historically, it's an absolute killer of of um, ambition, unfortunately. So we, we do find about 70% are staying operational at the end of those two years. But for us, there's a real problem that people in positions of power in our society do not know and care about prisons. And um, Edwina and, and Aki and Karen, you've spoken about like your family's response to this. And I think that's that's part of the problem, right? Like people who are making decisions in our country, who are running businesses, who are in politics, it's not their friends and family who are going in and out of prison. They haven't grown up, you know, going to visit family members in prison on a weekend, typically. And when they do go to prison, they often end up having quite a different experience in open prisons. Um, and I think there's stuff been written about this, the, the kind of experience of um, that group in the prison service. So we need people in positions of power across society who know what prison is like, care about prison and can advocate for prison. We need them in the Houses of Parliament. So when the government puts through some huge cuts, we have a similar response to what happens when they try and cut schools, which is like everyone goes bonkers and people are out on the streets. You can cut prisons by extraordinary amounts and very few people get upset because because they don't really understand why it matters to invest in our prisons. And often their only experience of prisons is as a victim. And therefore the idea of, you know, that per- that there isn't this kind of long long picture presented about why we need people invested in. So we want people running businesses who will recruit ex-prisoners and invest in prison industries. We want members of parliament voting for sensible prison things, including like more money, good thing. Um, I'd love a Secretary of State for prisons who'd spent two years at least on the front line of the landings. I'd love a justice advisor at number 10 who'd spent two years in prison. Um, I think we've really seen the benefit of that from frontline policing experience. And um, it would be great for prisons to be much more on the agenda there. Um, we we want people in the media. I'd love editors of the big papers to have spent two years on the front line and like just get rid of some of that holiday camp nonsense. I mean, it, it doesn't look like any holiday camp anyone would spend money to be in. You know, the rest of the country might buy that, but those of us who work in prisons, you just think, my God, that's really embarrassing. Yeah, but we do also want people staying in prison and making a difference operationally. So we want that kind of system change piece. And then we we also, you know, wouldn't it be great if someone went and was an MP for a bit and then came back and governed a prison or went into the private sector and then brought expertise back on um, on project management, performance management into a prison and then led a prison. So we're, we're really excited about just people in leadership positions in prison, in the civil service, in wider society, who've spent at least two years on the front line. Um, I think the other thing is, whatever social issue you're interested in, it's in its most extreme form in our prisons. And actually, we need people in our society who understand the complexity of those social issues 
and who then spend the rest of their life campaigning. So it's a two-year graduate scheme, but actually we're much more than that. We're about creating a cohort of people who've got this shared experience, two years on the front line at some of the toughest prisons, and then spend the rest of their lives dedicating themselves to breaking cycles of reoffending wherever they are best positioned to do that. Um, and that's that's what we're excited about. We want a cohort of system changers working together to really push through some some big change. We we also, frankly, there's a huge amount of charities doing great work in the prison service, often a bit disconnected from the regime. So we want prison officers using those charities as a, as a resource to help them deliver their work better. Um, we want charities using prison officers as a resource to help them deliver their work better, and all working together towards. I think what's a shared mission of breaking cycles of reoffending? Yeah, absolutely. So it's so much bigger than just you know the graduate getting a you know an incredible two years, isn't it? So, um, Karen, what what next for you? Where where are you up to since doing your two years? And and do you think your life? Well, if you go into football, you might find yourself. Um, it might be useful to have some prison knowledge. You never know. I was actually quite unlucky because last year I was put into the shielding category, so that also. Um, was during the time I actually finished the programme, so I ended up being at home. I've been home for the last year, sadly. But during my time at home, I actually, as I was saying in my introduction, I've joined the Longford Trust. I've loved doing key working sessions in the prison, and I thought being a mentor for former prisoners that are, in, that are going to university now would be a brilliant way to continue contributing to that mission of reducing reoffending. Um, during my time on the programme, I had the chance to go with Natasha to HMP Lincoln to see the Twinning Project, which is a football-based charity which links prisons to football clubs and delivers coaching qualifications for prisoners to help them get jobs in the industry upon release. And maybe doing work with that charity, for example, or continuing working in the sports area, using football as a tool for rehabilitation is something that I'm really interested in, in terms of my next chapter now, and continue continuing doing mentoring with the Longford Trust. Great. And Oki, what about you? Where, where are you going these days? As I spent sort of time in the prison service and increasingly towards the end, there was a lot that I was sort of trying to do on a local level um, and very, uh, various sort of initiatives and projects that uh, myself and sort of other prison officers and other grads were driving. But over time, it sort of became increasingly apparent that despite the amazing work that sort of goes into prisons, you know, the overarching framework wasn't changing and it didn't appear to be moving in the direction that that you would hope for and that and that you would expect. So I actually looked at consulting and have, uh, and joined a consultancy as a result to get sort of a better understanding of sort of the tools and the methodologies and the thought processes and um, sort of membership to particular teams who can help sort of drive change on a sort of a systematic level. I'm particularly interested in how you can motivate, incentivize and inspire workforces with the recognition that those working on the front line are the people who are best primed to deliver change, whether it's sort of cultural, structural. And so with joining consultancy, I want to harness that sort of appreciation of the positions of the frontline workers or those sort of working on the shop floor are in, the benefits they can bring um, and sort of understand how you can drive that awareness up sort of every every level sort of within business, whether it's public sector, whether it's private sector. Um, and then hopefully, who knows, maybe with the overarching aim to go back perhaps into the civil service to become sort of the just, part of the justice initiatives that Natasha was alluding to before. Um, but like Karen, always bring it back to sort of my passion and my 
um, sort of, I suppose, overarching purpose, which is to promote a better understanding of the prison service and to basically, I suppose, make society a little bit more accommodating of prison reform and um, the possibility of change um, and the importance of frontline workers. Yeah, because as Natasha was saying, that sort of, you know, we need policymakers and we need the legislation, the legislature to understand prisons. And certainly throughout my career, um, and I sort of worked in the House of Lords for a little bit, it was just absolutely fascinating to see the work going on, yet people who hadn't stepped foot inside a prison were making these decisions were creating these laws. And I just sort of thought, you know, when I was like 24, I was like, I must have missed something. This cannot possibly be happening this way. And then you sort of realise that that is the way it happens, which is why it's so important for this people like you. I mean, in a way, I suppose it might be challenging that lots of people sort of work in the in the prisons and then leave. But actually, when you look at it in that different way, as you sort of articulated, Natasha, it's so important that we have different people at different stages in the in the whole system to be creating a better a better organization so are there any examples of um sort of areas that you were able to either make a positive difference or sort of where you were just lifting the mood on the wing absolutely i think a key sort of message and a key theme that comes through our training is sort of the power of you know everyday conversations and just uh, listening to people's circumstances and getting an understanding of the sort of challenges that they'll face on, on release. So an example, I suppose, was with one of the guys who I was key working, who I used to met, meet with once a week. Um, and we sort of have regular sessions in terms of preparing him for release. And it became apparent that he was going to be released as homeless, um, that he had a lot of mental health concerns that he thought were going to really be an obstacle. And, you know, the way he was speaking, he had very much resigned himself to the fact that he was going to come back to prison again. And I thought, no, this this will absolutely not do. We're going to change this. Um, so, I mean, it was sort of two weeks before his release, so I knew I needed to act fairly quickly. Um, and I identified this housing charity um, in an area that was actually further out of London, um, which I thought would sort of represent a really good sort of fresh start from him. And he sort of conveyed an interest in that. Um, we also sort of liaised with the prison doctor with regards to getting him a medical note, which he could then bring to the council, um, which would then sort of hopefully make him eligible for sort of more assistance. Um, and I was speaking a lot with his probation worker, sort of communicating some of the risks and um, some of the challenges that I think he might have on release. And in that respect, it was great because the probation officer was saying, do you know what, it's, it's so great that someone on the front line who knows this person so well is giving me a sort of more accurate picture of the, of the sort of things that this individual is up against. Um, and we managed to get him into a sort of really good headspace for release. And the beauty with um, liaising with this housing charity was that on his release, I could sort of ch check in and I heard through them that he had secured accommodation, um, that he was sort of in the process of applying for benefits and that he, um, he was gaining assistance and looking for a job. And it was one of those real moments where it was like, oh my gosh, that, you know, that first conversation that we had and it, it can make all all the difference and you really do have the capacity to completely alter the trajectory of someone's um, life journey for good so that was really good sort of from a professional um, level and then I'd say it's probably my favourite memory which is slightly more wacky um, was my first Christmas that was at HMP Wandsworth and it became sort of apparent that there was nothing really organised and I was thinking this is so sad it's Christmas day um, we need to do something fun and I was thinking what what can I do to lighten the mood a little bit um 
And I came up with this ridiculous idea, which I now look back on and I hold my head in my hands. And that was um, to play the bagpipes on my um, unit centre so that everyone who was coming down to receive their Christmas lunch, I was in the middle playing this deafeningly loud sound. I have one prisoner who was great, who was holding my music for me, who you could see over time with my sort of my cheeks getting bigger and my face getting redder and sweatier. He was just horrified by the end. He didn't quite anticipate how loud it was. But it was so funny. We had prisoners sort of dancing on the landings. We had clapping. We had thumping on the walls. And it was, oh, it was, it was so fun. And actually, you know, when I was leaving and when I was saying goodbye to prisoners, they said, "Oh, you've got to play your uh, bagpipes as you go out, Miss." And what are we going to do next year without the bagpipes? So, yeah, I'll yeah. hold that memory very dearly. Managed to get your bagpipes through security, which was probably the most impressive part of the story. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. They're like, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> and Karen, what about you at Ellsbury? Yeah, so we were able to bring some cool culture change into our prison. The cohort I was part of was very diverse and we brought in three events in one year. One was a Black History Month event, one was celebrating Eid for, with prisoners and one that I was part of was actually running a Sikh event celebrating the founder Guru Nanak's 550th birthday, which was really cool. Bonding with prisoners over samosas and jalebis was really interesting and awesome. <laughs> but those things are really cool and they had never been done before. And that's a great way to keep prisoners engaged and appreciating their culture as well. And I think that is now a mainstay in the prison and will be celebrated every year because of the ideas we brought in. Also, I had spent time in our offender management unit and the head of the OMU asked me to create a prisoner needs analysis. And this is just how well prisoners engage with the services we offer in our prison. And traditionally, they've had a really poor response rate. I mean, they've had like five or 10% response rates throughout the whole prison estate. So I wanted to change that. And I worked with psychology to look at ways we could make a survey that's really engaging for prisoners to use, especially our cohort who have very short attention spans. And we made it really short. We, you know, we use imagery. We had the option to have it translated. And psychology said it's maybe worth, you know, investing in 500 penguins, chocolate penguins, you know, to get them to, you know, feel rewarded once they complete the, uh, the survey. From that, we had an 85% response rate, which is probably the highest ever in history in the prison state, which is really cool. And we learned some really, we got some really good data from that. And um, people, a lot of the prisoners and officers had no idea about the services we offered. And from that, we were able to make a booklet that listed everything we had. For example, we have a service called Storybook Dads, which you may be aware of, um, where you can read a bedtime story to your child and it's sent home. Only two people were using it and we had 20 spaces. And that's because no one knew about it. And from the booklet, that increased massively. I think it reached 18 to 20 people, max capacity, which is really good to see. And also people were afraid to pick up their medication from healthcare because they were too scared of getting into fights. And that's crazy, you know, having people who are afraid to pick up their own medication in prison with so many mental health issues already in the jail. And that enabled us to tweak the regime. You know, people are able to go at different times to pick up their um, meds, which is brilliant. So just from having that experience. Yeah, and this is what I find so exciting in the sense that, you know, the reason I called my organisation One Small Thing is because it's about culture change and it's about individuals realising that they can actually do things. And even though prisons are a really sort of restrictive, sometimes oppressive regime, you know, the the sort of um, opportunity for entrepreneurialism and, and innovation is actually bizarrely large. Um, as you say, you can identify a little problem that actually, you know, is a big problem in someone's life, like not picking up, not feeling confident enough to go and pick up the medication. And you can actually, as an officer, just change that by using your brain. 
you know, and that's so exciting. Exactly. And when you think of the ripple effect that has in aiding their rehabilitation, giving them more confidence now to, you know, try out other services we have on offer, that could go a long way in reducing their reoffending. Just from one small thing, such as making a survey, that's more engaging. Um, when it comes to the Ministry of Justice, what, how, what relationship do you have with the Ministry of Justice and, and how would you like to grow Unlocked graduates if that is something you want to do? So we have a really good relationship with the Ministry of Justice and um, I think we, we very much came out of partnership with the Ministry in a way that I think the similar graduate schemes, um, we we were quite uniquely positioned in that there was a change of minister during our startup, and that meant we I think we had a lot of um, a lot of support from the Ministry of Justice and HMPPS, and it's very much a partnership in terms of delivering this. We you can't put on prison officer training without a huge amount of support from HMPPS and the Ministry of Justice, and um, we also I think what. What we do is celebrate excellence in the prison service and use that to deliver our model. It's very much um, hand hand in hand with rather than a kind of intervention model, uh, if that makes sense. So we we do always want to grow and I'm always like banging on at uh, HMPPS, the Ministry of Justice, about how we want to increase our numbers. Um, we, I, I think just just to explain, when we were first starting up, this was mad, like really mad, as in 1% of graduates at the most competitive universities said that they would consider joining the prison service, not even becoming a prison officer. The concept was mad. And we would arrive on, we arrived on campus and, you know, we set up our stall and people come along and they say, I'm not graduates, what's this? And we'd say, it's a, it's a job where you're going to do a leadership development programme and you're a prison officer. And they like, they think they've misheard you. They, they're like, oh, oh what? Uh, uh, and then and then they kind of back away because they're like, well, you know, I I clearly am at the wrong stand. And do you know where you are? You're at, you know, university career fair. And um, I've done them with Karen recently where he said, yeah, I was a prison officer for two years. And again, they think they've misheard. They're like, you were a what for two years? So it's a, and, and when we first went on campus, we genuinely thought no one, we might just have a situation where literally no one applied. And we opened our applications. And I remember we were in the office. We were a really small team at the time. There were like five of us. Um, I was heavily pregnant. And we were just waiting. And we got an application through. And we were just so excited. You know, we got enough for someone applied. Woo! Because it would have been so embarrassing if like no one had applied. Um, so we, we've always been kind of amazed at just at how well it's taken off. And we, we took a punt that people coming out of university today, actually, many of them don't want to be super rich and go into banking um, and and have a kind of glamorous office job. I mean, they might at some stage in their life, but lots of them want to make the world a better place. Lots of them want to be part of changing the system. There's a lot of people out there who are really frustrated with the way things are run and they want to be part of fixing it. And a lot of them want a challenge. So we've always been kind of pleasantly surprised by that. We had 20 applicants per place this year. We had to close two months early we're number 36 in the Times Top 100 graduate scheme. Um, we're one of the most oversubscribed graduate schemes there is. We're, we're also now one of the most prestigious. We've won 10 awards this year alone for our campaign. Um, and we're kind of always a bit surprised by how well it's going. But also, if it is going this well, we just think, you know, we'd always like to be placing more. We've always got a waiting list of prisons who want participants. We've got great feedback from the prisons we place in that, you know, our, our participants can be um, sometimes infuriatingly positive, 
but in a way that does kind of, they're just always coming in with a smile on their face, always trying to do their best. And that does go down well. And that does sometimes bring, um, you know, I think it's it's been tough working in prisons for the past few years. When we were starting in 2017, numbers were really low. It was a very unloved, very challenging part of the, of the public sector. There was the new um, spice had come into prisons and really kind of decimated things, very difficult to track um, and a nasty drug in terms of its impact. And prisoners, prison officers were just exhausted, feeling unloved. And actually, I think what we've tried to do is just raise awareness of how awesome they are and also try and flood those prisons with new staff who want to learn from those prison officers who say, do you know what, you're awesome. I want to learn to do what you do and who show up every day excited and enthusiastic to do the job. And that can really bring, um, what I I hope is that brings a sense of pride to some prison officers who maybe were beginning to feel like they weren't very loved and actually, um, and are awesome and should feel super proud of themselves. And hopefully it's bringing a bit of kind of, a bit of light to some of the the prisons that really had a tough time. So yeah, more, MOJ, give us more. And how many um, graduates can you take on or how many recruits or graduates can you take on per year? So um, this year we'll be training 130 um, and we, you know, we, we can definitely, we can scale, scale quite a bit above that. I think there is a question about how many new prison officers are coming into the service and Unlock Graduates is bringing in um, a different type of, of recruit and a recruit who is uh, bringing diversity to the landing. So we always say that we wouldn't want to be you know, a majority of new prison officers. We, we don't think should come through our route, but we're, we're always up for, up for taking more. Um, and ultimately, yeah. we exist to break cycles of reoffending. So we want to be working in more prisons with more prisoners, um, making the biggest difference we can. Yeah, but you're full up for this year, aren't you? So to anyone who's listening that might be interested in this, um, the first thing I'd say, you've got a brilliant website and there's loads of really cool videos that help kind of explain what it is and some really good graphics about what those two years um, sort of entail. So I would definitely urge people to go there. But this year's booked up. So if people wanted to try and get on um, for 2022, when do they do that or how should they do that? So that's a great question. Um, People who want to apply for our next cohort, you can sign up now on our website to be kept in the loop with um, when applications will open. They'll open in September. Um, We do stay open until we have filled all our spots and built a healthy waiting list. We we did have to close after about eight weeks this year. So um, we were extremely oversubscribed. Uh, it, it is a very popular programme, so do get on the list as soon as applications open, get your application in. It's um, it's in, in terms of how we recruit, when we've filled all our places, we then close for applications. Um, as I said, that happened very quickly. If you're a prison officer and you're excited about being part of the Unlocked mission and you want to join us, um, we do offer the mentoring prison officer role. Um, so prison officers uniformed prison officers can apply for that role um, that goes out in the new year time. We do have a huge amount of applications for that job. We are looking for the absolute best prison officers, but um, they actually get a foundation degree in coaching and mentoring. They get two years of intensive training from us in how to become the kind of prison officer. If you're an awesome prison officer, then we'll teach you how to teach other prison officers to be as awesome as you are. Um, and that's, that's a really exciting programme for existing staff as well. 
And finally, to Oki and Karen, if you were to try and tell someone how brilliant this scheme is, what would your or what would your advice be to sort of up and coming officers if they were thinking about joining Unlock graduates? Um, Oki, to you first. I would say absolutely go for it because the reality is whether you stay in the service for sort of two years or 18 years, you know, you're going to be a prison officer, but you're also going to be a teacher, a mentor, a first aider, a firefighter in some instances, a friend, a coach, um, a parent. There is there's such a blend of skills, um, sort of, you know, it's both sort of soft skills, but also hard skills, which is so transferable for anything that you want to then go and do. I feel incredibly privileged to have been part of the scheme and to have been able to go into prison and to, I suppose, in my two and a half years, really only gain a glimpse, but with that, a really solid insight into some of the main challenges that are still affecting society. Um, But also I've come out with such a strong sense of possibility and such a strong appreciation of the the capacity for change, both sort of on an individual level when working with individual uh, prisoners, but on a systematic level as well. I think uh, there are going to be some really exciting things happening to the prison service, hopefully over the coming years. Um, and if you fancy a challenge and you fancy a good story to tell, definitely join the prison service and you won't regret it. Thank you. And the final word to you, Karen. Yeah, I'll say um, don't think just because you're not over six foot you know, and you've not been had a military career, that the prison service is not for you. Uh, there are so many, the diversity of officers is incredible. The best ever officer I've met was a grandma of four, and she was five foot two. She was absolutely phenomenal and ran the wing smoothly and had such great camaraderie with uh, prisoners who really respected her. It was absolutely brilliant to see. Uh, there's so much talent in prisons. You'll be amazing how many brilliant people there are. I've met writers, creatives, artists, musicians in prison, and... It's an area where you can bring, as we were talking about earlier, your own passions. I've been able to bring my passion of football. Prisons are essentially mini towns and there is always going to be someone where you can bring your passion and help engage with them in a creative way. And it's something that just really helps you stand out. Um, I actually remember it was a Monday morning. I was coming in at nine in the morning and I was told to wear riot gear because I have to do a planned intervention um, into a cell because someone had made a weapon, for example. And um I was just thinking at that moment, I was holding the right shield, and I was thinking most of my friends are probably like on the way to the office, you know, at Pret-a-Manger, grabbing a panini and a coffee, and I'm here, you know, talking down a prisoner to come down and come out of their cell and give up their weapon. So it's really cool, you know, you develop some great experiences and uh, skills. You know, not many people can run a wing of, as Oki was saying, up to 150 people. When I've had interviews now, you see the interviewer's jaw drop, hit the floor, talking about the experience you've had. So, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant experience. And I recommend anyone apply to Unlock. Yeah, and certainly from from my experience, what I know of your organisation, Natasha, which, you know, I've always thought is absolutely brilliant. But, you know, there's nothing about working in prisons that won't benefit you in any line of work you want to go into because um, I was really struck by um, what you were saying earlier and you kept using the term human and humanity, which is something I talk about a lot um, because that can get lost. You know, this is about human beings working with human beings and whether you're in an office whether there's something going on in a train station uh, family relationships I mean I have used my career in the prison service in all sorts of areas that um, you know that that I never thought I would so um, thank you so much to all of you for your time and if people want to learn more about Unlock Graduates go to the amazing website and your details will also be in the footnotes of the podcast so 
um, just thank you all so much for, for talking to me today. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.